This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And welcome to the second serving of our true crime pairing. We do these occasionally here at the Dinner Party Show Presents Christopher and to Eric. And last week, if you didn't uh, listen to our- the big kickoff to Toxic Love Month. That's right. I forgot Toxic Love Month. Thank you for reminding me. Um, we're going to be talking about the Phil Spector case today, and today is an episode we call a true crime movie time, and we usually pair it with a true crime TV club. So last week, if you haven't listened, you don't need to to enjoy today's episode, but we talked about an episode of a show called Dominic's, uh, Dominic Dunn's Power, uh, Privilege and Justice, and that was about the facts of the Phil Spector case, and today we are going to be talking about the HBO-produced movie... Uh, written and directed by David Mamet, called Phil Spector. Which is not about the fact of the Phil Spector <laughs> and case, we're going to hit that right up front. There's you... a thing that's happening yes. a lot. I've, I've seen a lot of different runs at this particular... There is a thing that is starting to, to happen where people just say that this is a true story or based on a true story, and then they just do whatever they want to, and mm-hmm. it has no bearing on the original story. And I think it starts to erode 
we're we're in a period of history where the truth is really under attack, mm. <laughs> or at the very least, having a really hard time of making itself known because our sense of things being true, like the the number of instances where you're able to say things that are not true in a very sort of authoritative way is is kind of growing. And I think people I think it leads to at the very least confusion, particularly about things from history and things in the past. And mm-hmm. this, I will say to their credit, the the opening of this film, they say, I was going to ask you, this is not based on a true story. This is yes. based on some characters from a thing that actually happened. And so, they don't really posit that they're doing a true story. And as a result of having watched um, the the Dominic Dunn thing last week, it's we're pretty clear it's it's really not. It it I think there's a lot. To unpack here, and I think it's an interesting story, and it's Helen Mirren and Al Pacino. So how bad could any could that be? Um, but it's it is it isn't a true story, and so we don't want to put. We wanted to be clear right up front that while this may be a fun movie and you may enjoy watching it, and it's about these characters, it's not. There's not much. It's- truthful validity to it. A beautifully made movie, and I'm going to say this up front, this is my opinion, which I think is also important, but it contains some facts that I think need to be entered into the record. Um, David Mamet is enormously talented. I don't believe most of what he believes. He is a very ardent public conservative. He has written multiple works that are about straight white men being under attack by quote-unquote liberal thought police. That is very much an idea of this movie. That is very much that his is take the idea of on this, this movie. case. Um, this movie was written with the cooperation of one of the defense attorneys who was barely present in the special we watched last week, but she was one of the women on the defense team. She is the character that Helen Mirren is playing. You have to look for her name as a consultant in the end credits, but you're right. It opens with a disclaimer that says, this is a work of fiction. It's not based on a true story. It is a drama inspired by actual persons in a trial, but it is neither an attempt to depict the actual persons nor to comment upon the trial or its outcome. But it's got enough of the convenient for the defense facts in it to feel like, hmm, okay. But don't take our word for it. <laughs> we actually, as, it, as you know, the, the happenstance would have it, we actually had um, on the Dinner Party show, one of our regular guests, one of our favorite guests on the Dinner Party show, I think she was in the top three Absolutely. or four of, on the her. most time, Marsha Clark, former DA here in mm-hmm. uh, Los Angeles, really sort of got a... Um, a renaissance when uh, she when they I, Ryan Murphy what was it called the American um, Crime the Story American Crime yeah. Story did the uh, the O J Simpson trial where Marsha was really I think got a really raw deal mm-hmm. uh, from the press and from the media in general mm-hmm. entertainment industry and the lot over that particular trial and she kind of got some of her own back during that particular right, yeah. uh, we loved her even before this was she was on our show way before. That came out, and the topic of this movie actually came up. Yeah, and so we're going to hear from her now. You wanted to ask Marcia about Absolutely. something you saw on TV I, last the, night. The Emmys happened, and the Phil Spector movie got a bunch of nominations for different people and members of the cast, and so I thought, oh, I haven't seen that, and so I recorded it. And honestly, at the time, Phil Spector has such bad press, I just thought, oh, yeah, that asshole, you know, whatever. And I didn't really pay much attention at the time, but then I watched 
this film. And I don't know how true it is because I really didn't pay that much attention, but David Mamet kind of posits that he really kind of got convicted of being an asshole, that the, the proof wasn't really there for the for the charges against him. And yeah. I, I, don't, I just kind of wanted to, if you, I, and you may not have any insight into it. I don't know, but were I you did. more aware of the, of the, of that particular trial? No, or? I wasn't in the DA's office at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's happened long right. since, but, Obviously. um, but I did follow it and I did read, you know, a, a lot about it. And no, the, the evidence was there. It's a very solid case, very solid case. And, you know, he was, he was an extremely talented, but very unbalanced individual. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Who, and he had, a, he had, he was known for pulling guns out all the time. It was just something he did. I mean, he and fired a gun off in a studio once when somebody pissed him off. So he was very they yeah, and they yeah. they covered all of that. But their 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 premise in the in the film was that because if he had actually fired the shot in into her mouth in that way, that he would have been covered with blood. Not true. And, not and, true. Okay, so That's tell us about true. that. People talk. You know, this is one of these things where it's really tough to get good testimony on this kind of thing. Blood spatter evidence is really more art than science, but but mm. there are certain things that are true that can be quantified, and they did in the trial. And I don't know what David Mamet was looking at or what he thought. That's but, why I say or what he didn't I just was look watching. at. Or what he didn't look at. Well, you know, yeah. we don't know, so I'm not slamming David Mamet. You know? yeah. I mean, That's why I was asking you. I wanted to know about the actual court yeah. case. Yeah, I mean, and everybody's going to have their point of view about this, but what I saw, I mean, when you fire a gun into somebody's head, the, the blowback doesn't happen... It, it, you don't have this big, huge spray coming out from her. It goes the other way. It goes back. So even if be, the bullet doesn't exit the back of the head, even if it doesn't, okay. even if it doesn't, because you have cavities, you have nasal cavities, you have all kinds of things. But um, but but no, you wouldn't have a whole lot of blood on him. So I, I don't know why he came up with that particular thing. That must have been what the defense. That was uh, what the defense, defense was positing. I'm sure he was going. I, I think it was probably based on somebody's writing or something. Whatever. It was, but was the it, prosecution performances did were it. remarkable. But you know, it was yeah. one of those things where at the end I was left with that sort of feeling of, like. Well, he does seem to be a horrible person, but that's not actually a crime. Well, no, you know? that's not. <laughs> but, but shooting somebody in the head actually but, is. But yes, so, shooting yeah, somebody actually. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just I, I knew you would know more about it, and it's actually a really. If you haven't seen the film, they actually I love I Helen Merriman, and I love him. Yeah, they did a yeah. great job. Really of good job creating those people. So you know yeah. what I mean. It yeah. does create a sort yeah. of compelling kind of moment of. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I, I know. So that was the defense position, but people frequently get hung up on this kind of thing about where would the blood spatter right. be, you know, and why well, wasn't he covered in blood? TV that has trained us to go I, for those We talk about of this details. all the time. I think yeah. we talked about it the last time you were on the show that TV has instilled a false uh, expectation in juries that forensic evidence is going to look the way it does on CSI. They'll right. start asking you why you don't have a certain test that doesn't exist because it's only been on CSI. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's the CSI effect. It is. That's what they start it calling is. it. It is. Yeah. I mean, and it does. It, it can skew juries. It gives them unrealistic expectations of what you can prove with the science, you know, and what can actually be done with evidence at a crime scene. So that is from episode 38 of The Dinner Party Show, which was our first podcast. You can find all those episodes at thedinnerpartyshow.com or on the well, separate that feed. That wasn't our first podcast, but it was an episode of the or our original oh, That's what show. I said, episode 38 of The Dinner Party Show, which right. was our first podcast. Yeah, it was absolutely, I thought it through. But um, those episodes, if you want to hear more, we talk about a lot more with Marsha in that episode, but that was the Phil Spector piece that we wanted to bring back yeah, to you guys and today. Yeah, to kind of get some expert, expert testimony in, because by including this film, we felt like we needed to lean back the other way a little yeah. bit because, like this, like the the big takeaway from the Dominic Dunn 
last week was that nobody was really surprised that he had finally done this because he'd been doing this shit for years. And, and this is just where somebody finally got hurt. Fired a gun in a recording session with John Lennon, which apparently caused John Lennon to say, shoot me instead of just doing something that's going to ruin my hearing. Um, so, yeah. Let's brief summary if people are joining this coverage of Phil Spector in this episode and didn't hear our episode last week, although it's there for you to stream and download if you want. Um, big, huge move, uh, music producer, kind of not no longer a thing, goes out drinking to the House of Blues Foundation room. That's the VIP room at House of Blues here in West Hollywood. It's actually been torn down and replaced with a hotel. But uh, he's denied entry by a beautiful... Uh, a uh, woman who was working the door named Lana Clarkson, who has been a struggling actress for years. Right. Um, someone says, that's Phil Spector. What are you doing? Knock it off. She lets him in. Later that night, he invites her back to his house for a drink. It turns out his house is in Alhambra, which is which about an hour away, which really I cannot let go cannot of. let go of. When but... that woman found out that she was going to have to go to Alhambra to have a drink with that guy to have a, a do-right or a make-good, given she had denied him interest, I'm telling you, there was a reaction. Uh, limo driver takes them back five in the morning. He's waiting outside. He hears a gunshot. Phil Spector comes out gun in hand says, I think I just killed somebody. And from there, the lies begin. She was suicidal, all that sort of stuff. So that was last week. And now we have David Mamet's and the movie take. really kind of takes up after that's already happened. Mm -hmm. It takes up as the defense is, as his defense is being mounted by his multi-million dollar, a collection of lawyers from, I guess, largely from the East Coast. It wasn't clear where Linda was was going to be from, but but she was not from in L.A. either. None no. of them were really L.A. Uh, lawyers, and they were being brought in, are being brought in at the beginning of this. And it focuses on, I think, what is ultimately kind of an interesting point is, like, just because somebody is disagreeable, doesn't mean that they're necessary, you know, like that. We've talked about that in other cases, like the woman who sang the, um, the, I don't know, the, some song about killing your husband. Oh, that day karaoke night. Yeah. And that was used as evidence against her in the, the, the case where somebody poisoned her husband. And it was like, That's can I, can not I really ask you to, I'm going to pause and I'm going to ask you to elaborate on this. Cause I think this is an important part of why you and I feel this way as gay men, which is the, the personality smear as implying that you are guilty of other crimes. That's something that has been used against queer people. Well, he was queer. So clearly Absolutely. he's a murderer. Clearly he's a pedophile. Clearly he is this. And I think it's why you and I both have such a visceral reaction I to it. I think that that's not, you know, that's definitely a part of it. It's the yeah. thing that I always say, like, I try to be mindful of people saying things that offend me and still allowing them the privilege of say, expressing themselves because I was the person saying things that offended people for so long because right. I thought it was okay for a gay man to raise a child when I wrote Say Uncle mm -hmm. and it got optioned to be made into a movie, the Hollywood people who optioned it who were, I, you know, they were willing to make a movie about a gay man raising a child, but their huge concern was about anybody thinking in the process of putting together the script that it would in some way imply that there was going to be a gay relationship anywhere near the child, mm -hmm. that that would be so offensive that we couldn't say that. That's how dangerous right who i was was at that time i i don't know that that necessarily um is on on par with some of the more um 
extreme views right. um, of, of, of people that are out there. But I try and take that in, into account because, yeah, you're right. We were, until the rise of um, sort of more mainstream acceptance of gay rights as a notion in this mm-hmm. country, a lot of what I've had to say and just existing has been considered um, threatening and certainly reason for it to be suspect right. um, in any other form of accusation. And I think that's just, you know, I think that the shoe is on the other foot more now and people like David Mamet are, are feeling the pinch. I think we've certainly seen it. Like one of the things that's interesting about this movie is that it's 2013 when this movie mm-hmm. is made. I'm not sure if this movie would get made Mm-mm. now because Mm-mm. he was really David, uh, not David Mamet, Phil Spector was abusive he was a, an mm. abusive man he abused women he was abusive to his wife and he was abusive and violent towards other people pulling a gun on somebody is an act of violence period mm-hmm. i think showing up with a gun at a public place is an act of violence but that's another debate that mm. we'll have at a different time but i th- i think that we have come to a new understanding that would not really include this kind of view of, uh, of Phil Spector at this point in time. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that it's all that fancy. Well, fancy it's that. pretty common. Okay, where do we want to come at this when we come back? What do we do? We want to start walking through the movie, or what do you want Absolutely. to attack? I think I, I I know exactly what to do. Okay, I'll I'll put myself in your hands then. Okay, so I think we've wrapped up the disclaimer act. <laughs> the first act was all disclaimer. We wanted to put this into perspective before we talked about it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but I'm not saying we do not want at any level to say that it's a factual movie. Usually with the true crime pairing, there's more of a sense of it being based on the facts, and this wasn't, other than there was more gunshot residue on her hands, apparently, than on his, and the blood spray on his white jacket was light. That's it. That's it. There are no other facts that I think that were a part one, of One more fact, and I have to say, the LA, I found an article on the LA Times website, and maybe we'll share that on the Facebook page after this episode goes live, where, where the where a reporter who covered the case really took him down, right? And she said one of the things was that some of the experts who testified forensically said that the blood spatter su- suggested what was there, the mist and the type of mist, was more on her hands than on his coat because she could have been putting her hands up in a defensive posture when the gun was fired and the blood went everywhere. Also an important deal, something you pointed out last week that's missing from this movie, 
her purse was on her shoulder. She was trying to leave. That yeah. was his that was his MO. Yeah. He would get them there and then he would pull a gun on them to prevent them from leaving. And yeah. that's where we were. She was literally on a chair within steps of the front door. When he opened the front door, the driver in the parking the, the motor cord out mm-hmm. front could see her sitting there. Like yeah. it it really happened right there. So she sat down, she was arguing with him. Okay. He pulled a gun and things got out of hand and he killed her. Another thing that is missing, but I, the other thing that's missing, I think once we get into the, the beats of the movie, I'll, I'll point that out. It has to do with the, the defense team overall, Phil Spector's defense team. So um, what are your thoughts on David Mamet? Are you familiar with David Mamet's oeuvre? I have to say that David Mamet is one of those people that I don't necessarily get. Like, mm. I think Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is almost unwatchable. Tell me about it. I know nothing about I, Glenn and Gary. And there you <laughs> are. It's, you know, it's white guys yelling at each other. It's this, there, there is something. Like us, that, you mean? <laughs> Sorry. No, not in a fun way, you know. <laughs> right. Like, it's a, there seems to be something, some aesthetic to him, like, that some people really get. And I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm okay, like, sure, fine. But it is, there is a sense of like wanting to see the worst in everybody in every situation that is mm-hmm. a part of his worldview that I can't really, that doesn't really work as well for me. It's mm-hmm. not, it's, to me, it seems um, too simplistic. Like, I'm not a big fan of um, oh, Oliver Stone. Mm. I'm not as big a fan of his writing either for exactly the same reasons. The characters are really not multi, they're not very deep. Right. Like, this was kind of an exception because he had real people to base the characters on, so there was a little more depth to them, and then I think these two actors really did him credit. Mm-hmm. But I find his stuff to be almost stylized mm-hmm. because the characters are so without... They're, they're types. They're not actual characters. Right. They're very much like a type. Yeah. And he sort of tells stories in that kind of shorthandy kind of way. And I just... It doesn't really work for me. It's not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't so, think it's bad or wrong. It's just not for me. Uh, his politics. Have they ever sort of crossed your windscreen in any way? Not really. I mean, I'm aware of people being conservative, and you know my feelings about it are like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, everybody gets to feel as we just discussed. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, like I try to be open to other people having other points of view. I don't necessarily have to agree with them. Like the thing that makes if you want me angry about your point of view, try and force me to have it. Yes. Try and tell me that I can't have my point of view. Then we're going to fight. But you have your point of view and I have mine. Okay, sure, that happens. Um, yeah. I, I can't see how it wouldn't. I, I just... So it, it's not played a very big part of it right. for me. It may color his choices as a writer. Um, I guess, it. you know, I'm sure my own thoughts and beliefs color mine but mm-hmm. that isn't really the my primary reaction to him i don't actually honestly i don't actually think he's a very good writer mm-hmm. that's the thing that that's my reaction to him i think he's simplistic and a little juvenile mm-hmm. in his in the way in which he tells stories this i feel the same way about oliver stone they're both hugely successful internationally famous men and i'm not mm-hmm. so you know fuck me <laughs> 
<laughs> but that's how I feel about it. Okay, you know, like, right, yeah. I don't. It doesn't invalidate my belief or my yeah, feelings. Sure. But clearly, I'm you know not. There's enough of a group of people out there who thinks they're great mm-hmm. that that doesn't matter. That I don't. You know, I don't think it indicts them. It just it means that I don't look for them when I'm. Uh, you know, in my view, what are what are your thoughts? Well, on you know, I, what are my thoughts? My thoughts are it, the the political point that he wants to stake out, and I do think it's a political one in this movie. Um, would have been better served if he had not excised most of the inconvenient facts of the actual case. As one, I saw one reporter who covered this because I did go online after I watched it and thought, "Wow, how did people react to the discrepancies between the truth right. and the whatever?" And that weird disclaimer we talked about earlier. My attitude was um, there are moments of mob mentality run amok. There are moments of due due process being deprived people. There are trial by Twitter. You know, all that sort of stuff. Those are all real things. I think they happen on both sides of the political divide. I think they happened to James Gunn when he was fired off of major projects because he had tweeted some things that were seen as making jokes about pedophilia and child molestation years before he had a career. He's since been hired back because I think there was a realization that all of that happened too quickly. But I think his contention, as you pointed out earlier, that Phil Spector was put in jail forever. I think he's he's since died, right? He died in jail. Um, because it was weird, it's just not supported by the facts here. He picked the wrong case to try to make that argument. I don't with. think it helped his case. Right. Like I think he might have gotten a lesser charge or gotten a deal or, you know, like gotten a better sort of set of circumstances if he hadn't been quite so abrasive and impossible to deal with. Yes. Like I think you could make the case for it was you know, negligent homicide or something, you know, other than, like, I don't think he took her there with the intent to murder her, but it happened, so. The case that I think is made, um, not not convincingly, but but with some pretty transparent, uh, I, don't, I don't even know what word you would use for it, transparent agenda, let's say, is that David Mamet wants us to believe that Lana Clarkson was crazy and an opportunist and a star-fucking star social climber. And that is shown very briefly. They show what is supposed to be an acting reel, that they have lawyers watching her acting reel, and when she is in blackface, I don't know if that's real. Um, and they have Phil Spector monologuing in, in uh, this you know shadowy, vast interior of his mansion, about all the people who have wanted something from him over the years, and she was just another woman who won. And no contrary viewpoint to his monologues is really presented effectively. And that, to me, says, okay, this is the writer's voice sort of sort of focusing the camera in on this particular aspect of the theory of the case. And that's the um, sort of pre-Me Too kind of yeah. problem with, I think, this film. I think we are seeing it in the context of where we are now, right? where we are... We were pausing, and I think there was a lot of revelations for people on the privileged side. Yes. I have always told that story of seeing Natalie Morales talk about, I can't even remember which one it was. I think it was that, the comedian, Louis C.K., mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. But talking about, because my attitude was always, well, why would you put up with that? Why wouldn't you just walk out? Why wouldn't? And her saying, no, I didn't. If it's your boss, yes. you can't just walk out on him. And it was like, wow, I'd never really thought about that as right. as a consideration. Like coming to understand what the other point. This is about um, ignoring the other point of view. Exactly. Like this is about the. This is the thing that we've that we I think are still negotiating our way around. Of are we listening to 
the survivors? Are we listening to the women or are we not? Because this is another case, just like with Cosby, of this is not he said, she said. This is he said, she 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 said. It gets harder to say because there's so many she's, but it is. But everybody, there aren't any exceptions of women saying, oh, no, that was, you know, the gunplay was really just sort of amusing and kind of, I really kind of like that. One of the things that that I think comes out is that I think in general is that there were women who loved him mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily stop them loving him, but they could not, they couldn't get past this part of it. He him. was married and that move, the movie eliminates the marriage entirely. It shows him as being alone. Somebody compared, a reviewer yeah. compared him to Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. He was married. He had a doting wife. To a 256 year old woman. <laughs> According to my typo in my notes last week. Or a 26 year old woman. 26 year old woman. Beautiful woman. Married to her. This man had not been abandoned. You know, as we covered last week, Lana Clarkson is working the door at the foundation room. She fucks up. I think it's a new job. She fucks up. She doesn't recognize Phil Spector. He's a big deal. Maybe kind of a has-been, maybe a huge has-been, but she doesn't recognize huge him. Huge has-been. So she goes to his house to have a drink because she's trying to make it right. She's got a new job. Her career is not working. She's 40 years old, all that sort of stuff. In this movie, through the maw of this movie, that becomes she was after something. She wanted to take something from him. No, that's not what the facts of the case suggest. She felt obligated to go, and it gets back to the Nat- Natalie Morales thing. If you were somebody who was in a position of power and you say, have a drink with me, the person who says no, there are consequences for them. Yeah, and, w- and it may have been losing her job, yeah. at the, the, which was a good job yeah. at this particular, the, the place that she was working was sort of the VIP room mm-hmm. at this club that neither Christopher or I were such big fans of, but no. it was the VIP room, and the tips were big, and the money was big, and yeah. the, the names were big, and so it was not a job she wanted to lose. Maybe... Phil didn't couldn't do anything for her, but that job maybe could have. She yeah. didn't know that, and there is always that sort of crazy belief here that Lana Turner getting discovered at the soda fountain. If you're in the right place at the right time, which I can't argue with, it might actually happen for you. And she was still a young woman, you know, young enough trying yeah, to totally. uh, to make it in Hollywood, and she she could take fountain to get there. But there was more to it than than that. There's the other side of it is the like. I think that Scott Peterson killed Lacey Peterson. Yes. But I don't think they proved it in court. Mm-hmm. And I think that he got convicted because they didn't like him, not because they proved that he killed that woman. Yeah. I think he did kill her. I think that justice was served in its own weird way. But I'm not crazy about that. But what this movie does is it tries to appeal to that sort of argument and say, but it says... Uh, it focuses only on the blood splatter evidence, which is very controversial evidence, as we heard Marsha Clark say. It's more art than science. So it eliminates other key facts of the case that really suggested guilt on Phil Spector's part in order to have Helen Mirren playing this defense attorney who is brought in fully believing Spector is guilty, not wanting to take the case on, having to be sort of cajoled into it by Bruce Cutler, uh, who is the lead attorney, a performance and a, and a role written for him in this that bears almost no relation to None. the real Bruce Cutler. Absolutely no who resemblance was whatsoever. basically shamed off the case because his courtroom performances and were so... And who was a mob lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and they have him, and the scene in which they depict that is just, it was laughable if you know the real story, which is, oh, he and Phil agreed that, that he would leave the case at a certain point. What actually happened was 
He was so caught with his pants down in an opening statement, the prosecution had so outmaneuvered him that he was embarrassed in court and admitted it, and then he resorted to cross-examining women who were bringing allegations of violence against uh, Phil Spector by pointing at them and yelling at them to the point where he was shouted down by the judge and told to shut up. He left the case, and he wasn't... He was mishandling the he case, and he left. He was their chances. None of that is in the movie. None of that None is in the movie. None of that is in the movie. And what is in the movie, and I think this is implicit in what we're overall discussing, here and I think it's implicit in, um, if not Mamet's belief, at least what's being positive in, posited in this particular script is that if you have accomplished a certain amount in your mm-hmm. life, if you are successful enough at a certain, you are entitled yes. to behave however you fucking well want exactly. to. Exactly. And other people complaining about it is just them uh, being sour grapes. It's they're, Absolutely. They're just jealous. Exactly. And that's, I think, the idea that is at least being challenged by our new sort of take yes. on what is abusive behavior and what is not. Like, I think that you should be treated with respect, mm-hmm. but I don't think you get to treat other people with disrespect and in return. The, I think yes. that's the thing that we need to learn to let go of. And, you know, speaking as a member of the group that has felt most entitled to this particular position, I kind of see how it's a dawning revelation at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think you're right. I think that is the flip side, whether Mamet realizes it or not, of what he's saying here, which is they should have just been more understanding of the mad genius. Right. And I, I think it's absolutely what he's saying. I, I think they go at lengths. And they're beautiful monologues and they're beautifully well yeah. played. And these two actors do an amazing job with this particular. You can see her almost tall for him as mm-hmm. he goes along. And the moment of her disappointment when she sees he's never going to be his own best advocate because he's just too crazy is really kind of touching. And And I think let's talk about how that plays out because she goes – she's going out on a limb – and thinking he should testify in his own defense. So that she can get other evidence in. It's the thing – it is – I think all of this movie is a reaction to the dirty trick that it wasn't dirty trick, the clever strategy yeah. that they pulled on the, the the defense right at the top. We talked about it last week, but they 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 went to extreme well they really tricked the, the, the defense um going into the trial. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by 
a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And... While it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. The lead prosecutor went to great lengths to through all kinds of pretrial hearings to get it into get it on the to make it possible to bring the statements that Phil had made early on in the investigation into the trial and those statements were open to some interpretation and the defense based their defense on responding to what they thought the prosecution was going to be and at, in opening in the opening statement, it the the defense, the, the prosecution made it clear that what they were going to mm-hmm. be trying him on was the end result of a pattern of behavior. He had right. a long-standing history of violence and abuse towards women, and that was going to be the basis for their case, that this murder of this woman was the logical outgrowth of a long-standing, provable and demonstrable pattern of behavior. And... It completely flummoxed them, but it's also what this movie seems to be about attacking. Yes, right. It's about going after that strategy by saying, no, no, here's the evidence. And so the only way they could have gotten those statements in was to put Phil on the stand. On the stand, yeah. Which he was, he lost and these statements over. He's were such a whack job. Things he said the night of the murder. That's the stuff that, that they had. They basically right. tricked the defense into believing they were going to introduce that because some were were supportive of the prosecution and some were not. And so the defense had, I guess, agreed to let some of them be admitted. But the prosecution then didn't admit uh, any of them, which left the defense. And if they bring them down. up, then you get the prosecution, the, yeah. the prosecution gets the chance to tear you down right. after for bringing them up. What you really said was so and so. And if they, and the only way to do it was to put um, Phil on the stand, which would just have been the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. But, but none of that she is decides in, this movie, right. in the movie to actually do that, to put him on the stand. But we don't so see that, any of what so you just described. Can, so that she yeah. can know. So right. that she can get evidence and things admitted, she has to put him on the stand so that then it becomes possible because they won't let them do demonstrations. She claims, I don't know if that's true or not, in the movie, she says they won't let them do demonstrations in the court. Because she has, and I don't know if this was true or not, because the demonstrations, again, as you just said, don't go in the court. She has fine-tuned the theory in this movie in a way that I didn't think we heard about in the previous special, which is, no, Lana Clarkson didn't kill herself, but she was playing around with the gun, put it in her mouth, and then Phil said, oh my God, what are you doing? And she went to pull it out of her mouth, and that is when the the uh, gun fired and she accidentally killed herself. That's the theory of the case that she wants to go with, with these demonstrations, but she can't get the demonstrations admitted into court because there is a law, I think maybe a Supreme court ruling. I don't remember if it was California or not, where if it's a theoretical demonstration, you can't do it, perform it in a courtroom during a trial. Okay. Like I, I, it it gets into, it gets out there into the weeds in a way that that, I don't know if we're prepared to get into. Whatever the case was, that's the premise in the movie that that Mm -hmm. she's trying to do. And then the day comes for where he would be going on the, on the stand and he shows up like he's made up. Dressed like Jimi Hendrix. 
That that's his theory. I'm Jimi Hendrix was he's got a wig on that is like as close <laughs> as a white person can get to an afro, and purple just yeah decked out. And in the scene, she can't. The way they play it is that she hears the news reports of him arriving. And she it can't is get of, an angle on it is him. One of the most ridiculous parts of the film. I, and, I just, and it was just ridiculous. She sees him round a corner, dressed like in a Halloween costume, and her face falls, and they have to go into a side because yeah. apparently even she thinks he's too weird. Like yeah. I just, I just thought it was a ridiculous part of the film. I, yeah. I was sorry they they made that choice. I, I thought it was. I didn't think it supported their own idea, and mm-hmm. it, in fact, it indicted it. It was, no, in order to be, you have to be more acceptable in order to testify what? on your own behalf because he's not charming enough or because we have to pretend that he's somebody else. They or- have just done a mock trial with him in the previous scene, which was an, an absolute disaster. He loses his mind. He can't hold up under questioning, and I thought, oh, this will be the moment where they decide he doesn't. But no, she goes... I guess she thinks he got it out of his system. And then because he wears yeah. a bad wig, she can't put him on the stand. And it's like, yeah. uh, okay, whatever. And that whole thing where she can't see him getting into the, yeah, coming into the courthouse right. until yeah, the last totally. moment for the reveal. It's so artlessly and childishly done. It's just, mm-hmm. it's again, bad writing, you know, mm-hmm. like she would have been at the, she would have arrived with him. Yeah. If it was so important how he looked, she would have decided what he was going to wear. Like, yeah. well, everything about it is just, I, I just thought it was grade school writing. But as the movie makes hay of, I think in a final title card, this is the trial that resulted in a mistrial. And then they say when he was retried, Linda Kenny Baden, who was the part Helen Meredith. had a terrible like, cough through the whole first trial. Uh, um, she couldn't defend him. And so the implication is that if he had had Linda again the second time, he might have never gone to prison. It's a really weird take, given how many facts are... It's a very strange movie on those terms. So in terms of true crime pairing, I don't think it was a very good pairing because there's no true. Right. There's just crime. (laughs) That that really didn't match up well with the facts. So by the true crime pairing standard, this was a total fail. Yeah. it's a good movie. I really like the actors. I think they did some great work. But Eric Jacquin, I have to tell you, that's usually how it goes with our true crime pairings because we will watch these movies and it will be like, where was this case? I think that was even similar with The Frozen Ground when we watched the Robert Hansen case in Alaska. It was like, wow, a lot of embellishments, a lot of additions. What there usually are is there are additions, but you're right. But there this are is- aspects of the crime to it. This didn't cover the crime. The, this the crime had happened way before this ever even got underway. Right, you know, yeah. There was no sense of an investigation or coming to capture him or anything. Like, like the changeling, that the, mm-hmm. the that I thought was an yeah, ex- that's a that good was point, an amazing. Yeah. Like sometimes they do at least the crime. This yeah. didn't even really do that. This yeah. was a, some sort of apologia for being an old rich famous white asshole you know who waves I mean? guns at people and threatens yeah. people and tries to prevent but women really, from leaving but really yeah. recorded great music so we should you know skip yeah. past it because you know john lennon didn't make a big deal of it when he shot right. off in the it was just you know good fun when he pulls that yeah. gun in the studio and shoots into the ceiling like no no i can't even imagine staying seated yeah i can't imagine or staying they, they do a scene they actually do a scene in the movie where he fires the gun. And the thing that drove me so crazy about the scene was that 
if a gun fires in a recording studio, it's going to blow out everybody's ears. And they don't even have anybody react convincingly. Like, it's a loud gunshot. He fires it at the ceiling, and the musicians are like, oh, that was annoying. Everybody would have their hands over their ears. Their ears would be re- ringing. The reason John Lennon made that comment to him when he fired the gun yeah. was that his ears were ringing. It's, yeah. But it's a trope of mo- – it's not a trope. It's an inaccurate depiction of gun gunshots in movies that we don't depict how loud they really are. Well, and he was making an effort to um, to downplay yes, absolutely. The, this character's violent and dangerous behavior. I just think he was yeah. somebody out of control who nobody could – Tell no. The other thing Leslie that I... Abramson couldn't even tell him to shut up when she was doing a press conference. And she's no referenced nowhere in the movie. Yeah. I, I thought the depiction of the defense team that was the most ridiculous. It was absurd that they didn't get the that how badly they that fumbled. whole floor at the yeah. old office building that they'd people just on the on the case and doing all kinds yeah. of amazing things to put together this yeah. really cohesive defense, which was which fell apart during opening. The LA Times article said the defense team was a clown show, that they were an outsized, ego-driven clown show, all of which were mugging for the cameras, and they fucked up his defense for the most part. He assembled them because they would kowtow to his beliefs and behavior. I I have to believe that. Yeah. There there was no sense that they were the best possible defense for him. Robert Shapiro had a much better record— God knows Leslie Abrams, you know, like that. Yeah. those are not people who are slow leaks. He put together the people who would put up with his nonsense, who mm-hmm. would buy his bullshit. And that David Mamet even brought one of the men to work on the film. That was, well, and it became her story, really. Linda Baden-Kenny, or Linda, Linda Kenny Baden, excuse me, is her name. And that could have been a really interesting movie, how I became convinced that this crazy lunatic was getting... The shaft because he was just crazy, you know, because he was eccentric. Uh, and that, that's as somebody said, m- tell that story. Don't try to tell Phil Spector's story. Yeah. Make up the story. It's one of those things. It's and you're right. And I think there's this thing right now. And I don't know if the executives in the studios are breeding this idea that because everything needs to be branded content, that if you want to tell a story, you have to find the closest true story and pretend that it's that and it's constituting another flank of the attack on truth. What was that movie that I think it was Glenn Close. She plays a defense attorney and she gets a guy off and then she realizes he was guilty. It may have even have been Harrison Ford. Well, because spoiler alert for a movie called Primal Fear, which is Ed Norton and Richard Gere, and he realizes in the final scene, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, this movie's been out a long time, though, that the guy was faking his multiple personality disorder, and that's the last scene of the movie, and he just got him off. So, yeah, there's that. That's the one I can think of. But Glenn Close... Oh, I know what you're talking about. Jagged Edge. Jagged Edge. Jagged. That's, that's a deep cut. We're going back to the uh, to yeah, the '80s. That's a way back there. But yeah. yeah, it was the same sort of notion. Those kinds of stories could be more interesting, like some version of that, where you become yeah. so seduced by your client that you come to believe in an innocence that really is, you know, obviously not possible. Right. And that could have been an interesting story, but this was not. I, I bought an Apple Watch, and it's. It's um, fussing at me during our podcast. What do you I need apologize. to do now? I need to pay attention to my co-host, Eric Shaw Quinn. Is, is that what your watch says? Because My watch says, look up and, and listen to Eric and smile, bitch. That, that sounds like the sort of thing I that, that it should say. It told me to stand. It tells me to stand, and I'm like, I'm sorry. Excuse me? Why don't you? I'm having dinner. Yeah. I'm not going to stand. I think that sounds like a feature dinner. you can turn off. Yeah, that's true. Well, we'll see. 
I don't want to. I don't want to rush into anything. So anyway, back to our podcast. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I didn't bring up your Apple Watch. I, I know. You did. I did. He is so taken with the Apple Watch. Are you gonna, I'm completely obsessed. It does this thing where it rates your sleep. It doesn't sleep. do that. It doesn't do that. That was the other thing. It gives you data about your sleep, but it does not give you a sleep score. That was the a watch that I retired. Yeah, because where I want to be dealing with performance anxiety is <laughs> over relaxing. <laughs> Like that, I'm sorry, your relaxing is inadequate. Inadequate relaxation Fa- alert. Re- relaxation fail. Relaxation I just, yeah, fail. No, sleep fail. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. This is not a part where I want to add anxiety. I want to diminish anxiety here. So unless it plays the sound of thunderstorms, it can fuck right off. Yeah, it can fuck right off. You're all about the white noise machine that makes mm-hmm. thunder. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess uh, we'll make a res- resolution, which we will quickly forget. To have a true crime pairing in which the movie actually deals with the crime. Well, and I think we usually do. I mean, I think there are always some failings to some degree or another, but we've never had this big a fail. Yeah. Like, and I think this was, and I think that HBO explained it. Like, this doesn't really have anything to do with this crime. Like, this is about some thoughts about these these kinds of characters, not even the real characters, I, I don't think. Don't, but she, I just thought that was so disingenuous. Given that she, the lawyer was a consultant, they were using Phil Spector, everything looked like it looked in real life. The of castle course. looked like it looked in real life. The facts that they wanted in were in. I just thought that was ass-covering bullshit. And the thing that we said right at the top was there is a there is a disturbing trend. The, the yeah. truth is under attack right now, and this is the kind of way in which it happens where we present something that is based vaguely on a true thing, and then we alter the way that we... We view it. We we make it seem like, you know, Hitler was really a great guy and everybody just really misunderstood him. And yeah. if people had just been willing to listen, mm-hmm. you know, things could have been so much better. And it's like, no, that's really not and the what only, happened. The only thing that makes that constantly possible are loud vocal groups of people who constantly loudly proclaim um, the worst intentions in their opponents. You know what I mean? Like, you, the people who are constantly pushing the big lie about the election are pushing conspiracy theories that say the other side is so determined to win that they will do anything in the shadows. You don't know. Don't You're a sheeple. You know, all this sort of stuff. And it's just crazy. But I will say the thing that keeps occurring to me as I, as I observe this, and I know you hate me to bring it up, but it's the truth, what? is that how long— did we go on about George W. and the hanging chads? And, like, how long did we go on with that stolen election? I would say not this long, and nobody on the left attempted to decertify the election once the Supreme Court had ruled. They maybe didn't like the Supreme no, Court I decision, but that's it's the extent to which we have elected officials parroting the big lie. I don't remember a lot of elected officials saying... No, George. I remember Michael Moore saying it at the Oscars, "phony president" or whatever. But there was a there was a certain wall between the the media voices and the politicians and the people in power, the people who can certify elections, right. and that wall is eroding. And I think that's what's scaring the and shit. That's out of everybody. what's scaring the shit out of me. And I think it's as a result of those loud voices screaming louder and louder yeah. from the sidelines. And I just think that we really were a part of that. Yeah. You know, I think there was a long period of not being willing to let that go, not in a political sense, but from the sidelines. And I 
I worry that that may I'll have given you, rise to this kind of notion. The idea that I think is done more of what you're saying or did more of what you were saying during that time period was the belief that Bush either knew about 9-11 um, or just simply, uh, you know, like that he knew it was coming and did nothing to stop it. Those conspiracy theories about 9-11 have, in retrospect, a QAnon vibe to them. They are really, the idea that he would—I think he was a terrible president. I don't support anything he did. I, I think that— Until recently. And, and 9-11 <laughs> was a, a massive intelligence failure on both parts, but I think that's where the real story lies, is the CIA and the FBI would not cooperate with each other, and they were not sharing intelligence, and anybody who could have looked at all their intelligence would have seen it coming. And the White House ignored it. Absolutely, and the White House ignored it. But the idea that he was— in on it, that it was a controlled demolition, all that stuff, that, that I think, and that dogged his administration, you know, but again, nobody was saying that on the floor of the Senate that I can remember. And now we've got people saying on the floor of the Senate that Trump won. He didn't win. Anyway. I know. I know. I think it is a difference and I, I agree, but it is, it is been an, it has been a progressive problem from that election going forward. Right. Yeah. I think that that called the the whole notion of elections being and I think substantive into question for the first time and then it carried forward and to we're now at a point where we're this denying the truth kind of place and you know honestly if you want my real thoughts about where it began is with Ronald Reagan who whose political style was tell people whatever they want to hear and then do whatever you want to do because right. that was what he did yeah right i know people don't necessarily agree with that but look at what actually happened yeah, that totally. man was great at making you believe anything that he said he was so charming and so seductive and then he did whatever he wanted to mhm I have to say my more strategic analysis, not strategic analysis, but my less, this is what I think is really, it is a product of, because this is what began with the George Bush election, was elections being won by, and I'm holding up two fingers and a tiny little, this many votes. Like, the margins of victory are so thin that people become desperate to just nudge the chip over to the other side. And they become willing to try anything because it comes up. The thing with the Florida thing was it was like a tiny number of votes. Like they were really deadlocked. Like the country was so divided right down the middle. And I think it it leads to this these groups that think that, well, if we can just nudge it a little bit with this crazy conspiracy theory. But it also leads to the notion of divisiveness. Yes. Like – what really what it says to me when the nation is that closely divided and that isn't necessarily a vote count thing but you know mm-hmm. still yeah. when, when the nation is that it's an electoral it, college it thing i should that, say yeah it means that we actually share a lot more common ground than we ever admit mm-hmm. and in order to make that little to nudge the chip yes. the little people have to adopt these insane crazy extreme notions and ideas to activate the right. chip the tiny bit that's going to move it this move yeah. the the dial this way to that and and that's as a result of focusing on the belief that we are that divided as yes. a country and i think the truth is by a country that that's that's that evenly divided is that we have a lot more common ground than anybody ever admits and certainly not yeah. the weasels in power right who are constantly focusing on, and certainly the media. The media right. is the worst. Right. The Absolutely. media is worse than any of it because they never want to. They want to, 
you know, they want a football game. They mm-hmm. want something. They want a clear-cut, easily-to-define narrative that they can promote and promote and promote. And mm-hmm. that, you know, is their job, and they need to get they need to build ratings. And so I don't fault them for it, but that has become the benchmark of truth. And right. so we wind up with this place where truth has become completely fungible. Mm-hmm. That's not the right term, but completely up for grabs. Up for grabs, yeah. You know, it is no longer it is no longer a statement of fact. It is a statement of belief. And I think that is really, you know, it certainly was the underlying principle in this film, which is actually mm-hmm. what we started out to talk about when we right. got carried away. But but so. it is that notion of the truth being not um being fluid. Yeah. We're gonna shift gears next week. Really? Well, thank well, God. Well, it's still, what do we call it? Fucked up toxic love month continues. <laughs> well, yes, okay. Because it's Valentine's season. Right. We're going to call it Valentine's season. So we went to our beloved party people on the Facebook page for the dinner party show, and we asked them to tell us the most romantic thing anyone has ever done for them. Aww. Also, I think we're finally going to deal with the Jordan Ampersand question that's been hanging over us. So. This is, I think the use of the term we're maybe yeah. a little, I think I have long since dealt with the, oh, okay. the Jordan Amazon. I think this is time for you to deal with. Okay, I think it's, it's, it's a come to Jesus slash Jordan. I think yeah. that may be, yes, a come to Jordan yeah, moment. Something is yes. in the air. The party people have spoken and something is in the air. We're just going to put it that way. Until next week and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Tune in next week. <laughs> Thanks. This is TDPS.